Let's pray together as we uh, open our hearts to God's Word. Lord, uh, we're thankful to be here this morning to be able to study your Word together. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the message that you have for us. We pray that, um, that more even than, than just understanding and receiving it, God, that you would, um, you would challenge and enable us to live it out. So, uh, God, we, we pray for the next few moments as we uh, focus in that you would clear our minds and, um, and make us receptible uh, to your message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had the opportunity this week to visit um, early in the week with a member of our church who had surgery knee surgery and um, and I got to thinking about the fact that that when you have things like that that happen you you break an ankle you uh, you uh, you mess up a knee somehow you have surgery and so on there's a, a rehabilitation process obviously that comes into play and eventually the goal of course is to get you back as strong or stronger than you were before well that's the goal in the meantime you might be forced to walk on crutches. How many of you have ever been on a pair of crutches before? Forced? Yeah, yeah. See, I, I've, I've had different injuries. I've never injured something where I had to walk on crutches. But I'm thankful for, for things like that because when you, when you injure a, a, a part of your lower body, you've got extra support. That's the whole idea behind crutches, that you've got something you can lean on, something that may for your deficiency something that helps you along, gets you back to normal as best as you, as you possibly can. And so uh, the crutches that maybe one day this, this dear lady will use or maybe something different will be used to help steady her, to, to make sure that she doesn't fall down, to make sure that her rehabilitation goes in the right direction, to make sure that uh, she's got something that she can, can lean on. If you think about physical crutches obviously we see immediately i think if your if your mind is going a little bit you know that there are direct parallels with real life you may not walk physically around on crutches but we all have things in our lives that we lean on for support maybe it's your family this is a church where family is extremely important we have many families who have been here a long time or related to folks who have been here a long time whose families have grown up in this community in this church family is very important even if you haven't grown up here haven't been around here long I've picked up that family is very important we all lean on our families maybe you've got close friends and some who have developed relationships in this church or at, at, at college or wherever it may be you lean on those close friends and you know their great value particularly when you're hurt, particularly when you can't seem to walk, so to speak, on your own. You know the value of those friends. For some, home is a, is a great crutch, something for you to lean on. And I think of our college students, that many are, are away from home. And I experienced that when I left home in the fall of 1995. And I went home about every other weekend there that fall. And then the spring came, and we started playing baseball. And I didn't go home from January to May. It was a crutch that I missed. It was something that was difficult to experience. I enjoyed my time at Murray State, certainly. But home was, was something very important. Maybe for you it's familiarity. And you just like things to stay the same. Some of us are, are like that. We just would rather not anything change whatsoever. And you know change is inevitable. It's going to happen in life. We all have changed. 
You do not look the same that you did a few years ago, for better or worse, I'm not sure. But you don't look the same. We change, but you maybe like that stability, that familiarity. For others, maybe it's a status or a job. And, and that's what you lean on. You are this person or that role or whatever you may serve in your particular job or business. And some have maybe retired recently and that crutch is gone and maybe you're not sure what to do. Or others have lost that status symbol, lost that job, whatever it may be. We're in a series on the life of Joseph from the Old Testament. He's a great character, a wonderful man that we have a lot to learn from. And what we're going to see this week is how Joseph deals with the fact that all of his crutches are going to be removed. Last week we looked at the fact that God builds our character through rejection. Some of us probably experienced that this week, and you had to live out the sermon. If you get our newsletter, you know that that's what I wrote about uh, this month, is that I was forced recently to tell my wife, well, you know what, it's time to live out the sermon. <laughs> and uh, maybe you experienced that this week. Uh, th- this morning, we're going to look at, at how Joseph deals with the fact that all of his crutches are going to be removed. All of the things that he considered so dear to him, that helped him for so long, they're going to be gone. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. Now, if your version's a little bit different, uh, the words will be on the screen as I, as I read Genesis 39, so feel free to follow along however, you, however is best for you. I, I, here's what I want you to do, all right? <clears throat> Look at me real quick. Some of you already started to read the story, all right? That's good. That's good. Here's what I want you to do. As we, as we look through this, as I read this story, I want you to try to, to, to observe as much as you possibly can about what the role of God is in all of this. What is God doing? What, what's repeated? It's going to be pretty obvious in certain cases, right? So pay attention. You may want to mark it. You may want to make a note somewhere. But we're going to, we know the story of Joseph, but let's think about what is God doing. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken to Egypt. Of course, this is a pickup from chapter 37 when he sold into slavery. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor in his master's sight and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority, and he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you were his wife. So how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants was there, 
She grabbed him by his garment and said, Sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she realized that he, has le- that he had left his garment with her and run outside, she called the household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fun of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment with me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make fun of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment with me and ran outside. When his master heard this, the story his wife told him, these are the things your, servant, your slave rather did to me, he was furious and had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The warden put all, all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything he did successful. Did you pick up a little bit on what God is doing, some of the repeated words and themes? This is a passage and a chapter that's often used in application on how do you deal with temptation. Certainly we see those elements in the story. But if you read the entire chapter from beginning to end, you see it bookended and interlaced with something a little bit different. There's a repeated phrase that I love in this particular chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. It says it several times. The Lord was with Joseph. The presence of God in the life of Joseph is the most important element of this story. Yes, Joseph resists temptation. Yes, he's a successful man wherever he went. But it's the presence of God that really is the focus of this particular chapter. We saw last week, and we'll see this week, that the story of Joseph is real-life stuff. God does not shield or hide his even Bible heroes from the pain and the realness of life. And I'm thankful that he doesn't. I'm thankful that we have in Genesis 39 a a story of Joseph, a godly man, a man who wanted to serve the Lord. Even he sold into slavery. He's wrongfully accused and then ultimately wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't commit. He's imprisoned for something that he didn't do. I think we can all relate in some way to unfair circumstances. You ever felt like the deck is just stacked against you? You ever felt as if, you know, I haven't done anything to deserve any of what I'm experiencing? Imagine some of you have dealt with that. If you're human long enough, you're going to experience those kinds of things. Unfair circumstances. Maybe you've been wrongfully accused. You paid for something you didn't do. You lost your job. You, you faced a relationship crisis, not because of your own doing because someone made something up about you or someone assumed you were a part of something, whatever it may be. We've all faced unfair circumstances. We see in Joseph all of his crutches removed. The beginning of this chapter, he's around 17 or 18 years old. If you rewind back to chapter 37, you know that he had experienced an incredible family life, at least with his father which quickly led to a difficult family life with his brothers, which quickly led to them conspiring against him and selling him into slavery. And now here he is at the beginning of chapter 9, 
with all of his crutches gone. But he's going to show us, and he'll learn a lesson that we must remember as well. That when all of your crutches are removed, God's presence is enough. When all of your crutches are removed, the presence of God is enough. That may seem to be a little bit abstract, but I want to show you how concrete it really is in the life of Joseph. This episode in Genesis 39 gives us a powerful example and explanation of why this is true. The presence of God, as we'll see in verse 1, was enough for Joseph when he was taken down to Egypt. It says, now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, bought him. So here he is in the land of Egypt. You can imagine what he's dealing with. 17-year-old kid. Not leaving home on a joyous occasion as if he's going off to college and yeah, it's tough, but it's exciting and all of that. He's broken hearted. And you can imagine him walking with the other slaves and in his shackles and chains and, and wondering, how in the world did that just happen? You can imagine his, his mentality, knowing that his family is gone. He'll likely never see them again. Knowing that any friends that he had were gone. Knowing that home, which meant so much to him, being the favored son of his father, it's all gone. Everything that was familiar to him, now he has to start over. His status We saw last week with the coat that his father had given him, a status symbol was ripped from him, and now his status is that of a slave. The dreams that God had given him very early in life now seem to have no hope. His identity was gone. He's no longer Joseph, son of Jacob. He's just a slave. Here he is without any human support. Here he is without any external hope. And he finds himself in Egypt. Egypt's a little different from what he had experienced in his home life. Every morning with the rising of the sun, the Egyptians would would sing chants to their gods to wake them up. So every morning Joseph wakes up in Egypt. Here he is, the son of Jacob. You know, God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here he is, this son of Jacob, this follower of Yahweh, God, the the eternal one, waking up every morning to the chants of false gods. The idols that the Egyptians had would every morning be ritually bathed and then sacrifices and offerings would be made to them. There are multiple gods everywhere, God of the sun, God of the moon, and so on. Pharaoh himself, the leader of Egypt, is considered to be a god. He is at the center of spiritual darkness in Egypt. His crutch of of his family's religion is certainly gone. He's also in Potiphar's house. Seems that Potiphar's pretty well to do. He's in good with the Pharaoh. He's probably loaded. He's probably got a lot of stuff. He has household servants, so you know he's got a little bit at least. So here he is dealing with this new place, this new culture, this new language, new ways of doing things, a new routine, a new mindset that he wakes up to. Joseph, like many of us, when we face unfair circumstances, he's got plenty of reasons to hate. He's got plenty of reasons to be bitter. He seems to have been abandoned by everybody, and also, it seems, by God. But it's here when Joseph learns to trust that the presence of God would be enough for him, 
even when he's taken to Egypt. Verse 2 gives us the reality. It may seem that he's alone, but what does verse 2 say? The Lord was with Joseph. These are words that Joseph already knew. We get them from the narrator of the story. Joseph already knew this because he trusted the promises given to his forefathers. He trusted the stories that he heard about them. God had promised to be with his family, to see them through. And Joseph leaned and trusted in the presence of God that would be with him even in Egypt. The presence of God would be enough for him even in a place that he didn't choose to be. He's also aware that the presence of God, as we'll see in the story, meant that not only was God with him, supporting him, but that Joseph, because of the presence of God, was also accountable to God. We'll see that as the story moves on. In Egypt, he could have very well taken the motto, well, when in Rome, do like the Romans, or when in Egypt, do like the Egyptians, and we don't see that in any way. The presence of God was very powerful for him. When all his crutches are removed, and he's just now a slave in Egypt, God's presence was enough for him. It's also enough for him when he serves Potiphar, verses 2 through 6. We see here the incredible results of the presence of God in the life of Joseph. He's a successful slave, and he's promoted to personal attendant. He's the right-hand man, and then he's given the role of overseer. Consider that. Ordinary slave rises to some role of prominence, and it says when his master saw, verse 3, that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful. Joseph found favor in his master's sight. The presence of God was enough for him, even as a slave. Now consider this for just a second. Joseph goes to Egypt as a Hebrew. He knows nothing about Egyptian culture and language and so on. But he, everything is new to him. He doesn't know the language, doesn't know the ways, the customs, and so on. Every way of doing business and all of that is totally new to him. Now, he could have, as a slave, just played dumb. Just pretended as if he doesn't know anything and just do the minimum to get by. You know anybody like that? Don't elbow him. He might be sitting next to you. You been around anybody like that? Maybe at work? They show up and they just play dumb so they don't have any more responsibility. The less you know, the less you have to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Joseph could have very well played that role. But what's implicit, it's not told to us explicitly, but what's implicit in this is that Joseph didn't play that role. In fact, he played the opposite role. That even though he's a slave and he has every reason to hate, every reason to give up, every reason to be bitter, every reason to do just the minimum, just enough to get by, he excels. He goes above and beyond. You know that he had to learn the language. He had to learn how things work. He had to learn how to work hard in a situation where he didn't want to be. He had to master his job. He had to acquire some skills for management. And because of the presence of God in his life, he's able to do all of those things. Putting in, I'm sure, long hours. Being genuinely interested in where he is and what he's doing. He had to be proactive, a self-starter. And he did it all, as we see in the story, because the presence of God was with him. He was in the presence of God no matter where he was or what he faced. And Joseph is made successful because of all this and the results spill over. It's not just that he rises to prominence, but Potiphar's house is blessed. 
That means not only was Potiphar rich before, but now he's really, really rich. Joseph, this slave who rises to prominence because of the presence of God, blesses the house of Potiphar. The presence of God was obvious. Joseph was ultimately serving God, we know, but he, he didn't forget that he also served others in the process. He never neglected his responsibility to his master, his boss. Just because, well, I'm serving the Lord and all I do is spiritually toward him, he put it into practical terms and worked hard to ensure that Potiphar's house was successful. The presence of God, even as a slave in Potiphar's house, was enough for Joseph. It's also enough as he faces temptation. Verse 6, the end of it. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Tempted to have all the well-built and handsome guys stand up. But, uh, but I'd, have to get, I'd have to get over here and sit down and look at you all, you know. Wouldn't that be great? You know, there are only a couple of people in the, uh, in the entire Bible that are, that are described this way. His mother was one of them, actually. Well-built, handsome, beautiful in form and in appearance. That means not only is his face nice to look at, but man, he is just built really well. The envy of all of us in here. He probably had nice hair too, you know? <laughs> sure he did. I can't see him with a bald spot and a receding hairline. I just can't see Joseph with that. Here he is, young guy, well-built, handsome. You might say, well, that's just God's blessing. But before you get envious of those who are well-built and handsome, you've got to read verse 7. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. Maybe you see that as well. That's something to be jealous of. But it just brought temptation for him. When he faced temptation, it's presented to him very directly, very clearly. There's no question on what she's about. None whatsoever. It appealed, actually, if you think about it, to a normal appetite that any person who's past puberty is, is dealing with. We look at this and we say, oh, something dirty about that. Well, certainly the temptation presents to him a dirty opportunity. But this was a normal appetite that any person of his age would have had. He's also presented with the perfect circumstances to get away with it. Think about it. She's a lady who's used to getting what she wants. You can imagine this would advance his career in some way. It comes even after his promotion to overseer. Maybe he could justify it and rationalize and say, well, I kind of earned this. I've earned the right to do these things. Verse 8, but he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look at the progression, what he goes through. Look. My master does not concern himself with anything in this house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. He refuses to sin against the responsibility he's been given. He said, look, I'm responsible for this house. I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize what responsibility my master has given me. Not only that, he refuses to sin against his master. He says, you're the only thing that's off limits to me. I can do anything I want in this home. My master trusts me that much, but I will not sin against him. And ultimately, and I love the end of verse 9. So how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? The presence of God in his life was enough 
to strengthen him and to build integrity into him and to remind him and convict him that, yes, it would have been a sin against his responsibility. Yes, it would have been a sin against his master, someone else. But ultimately, and mostly, and most importantly, giving in to this temptation would have been a sin against God. Joseph's reasons for refusal are the same reasons someone else would use to give in to it. Total freedom. Nobody's going to know. It's a perfect opportunity. But Joseph calls it what it is. It is a sin against God. He knew it was destructive, knew that it would hurt his master, and ultimately he knew that it was against God. His personal happiness, his physical gratification, none of those things were, were enough to keep him heading down the path of temptation. Instead, he stops it and says, no, no, the presence of God in my life is what's overwhelming. Verse 11, in verse 10, actually, she speaks to him day after day. You ever faced a temptation like that? It may not be in sexual nature, but have you ever faced something that it seems day after day after day after day after day it won't let you alone? I don't know what your habits are, what your demons are. I don't know what they may be. But maybe it seems that the same thing over and over and over and over again attacks you. Although she spoke to him day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants was there. Another perfect opportunity. She grabbed him and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. You realize what he's wearing is sort of like an oversized t-shirt. That's, that's the garment they're talking about. In order for him to get away and leave that in her hand, it's either got to come off over his head or be ripped off. That's how serious he was about the presence of God in his life and getting away from anything that would would destroy his relationship with the Lord. Think about that for just a second. He was willing to have literally what he was wearing ripped off of him to get away from the temptation. The bottom line for Joseph was that if he gave in, this would be a sin against the Lord. And he had to make a choice at this point. Up until we get to about verse 12 or 13... Joseph has experienced in slavery the favor of God. God made him successful. And the favor of people, he was promoted by Potiphar. But eventually, he has to make a choice. Is he going to please God or will he please people? Like every great man or woman of God, Joseph determined that he is going to walk with God no matter what it might cost him. All of us, all of us desperately, I'm sure, want to be able to please God and hopefully so in the process, please other people. I, I doubt that if you're in your right mind this morning, you say, you know what, I want to please God, but I really hope that everybody else just hates me. I, you know, as long as I please God, I'm totally cool with everybody just despising me. I doubt there's anybody here that would say those words and really say, I don't care about anybody else at all. There's something in us that we do want to please other people. We want to be in good standing with them, along with being in good standing with God. But there will come a time, maybe on a regular basis for you, I don't know, but at least there will come a time when you're going to have to choose because you can't have it both ways all the time. At some point, you and I, We'll have to decide, are we going to be loyal to God or are we going to try to please people? 
Joseph is face to face with that decision. I'm convinced that if we had a generation or even just one church or one community or one town or one county or one state or one area of our world that would say, no matter what, we're going to please God. We're going to choose God over everything else. I got a feeling that the world would be a little bit different after that. Joseph, in the presence of God, knew that it was enough to keep him from temptation, and he chooses God over what his flesh might have wanted. He chose character over his career, and it's going to cost him. Verse 13, when she realized that he had left his garment, she called to the household servants, Look what he's done to me. She put his garment beside her. Verse 16, and his master came home. She tells him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make fun of me, but when I screamed for help, he left his garment with me and ran outside. Do you know what the penalty is in the Old Testament for rape? Death. That's it. No other penalty. No prison sentence. No parole. It's death. Joseph could have expected one thing. When he hears the accusation against him from this woman who he did not even touch, he knew what was likely to happen. He was likely to be executed, and not after a long stay on death row, but just like that. But the presence of God though you may not see it at first, is enough even in the midst of his false accusation. She, Mrs. Potiphar, puts pressure on her husband to do something about what she claims Joseph has done to her. What's his response? Verse 19, when his master heard the story, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious and had him immediately executed. What do you see? He was furious and had him thrown into prison. Now we say, oh my goodness, what a wrongful imprisonment. Joseph should have never had to do that. But do you see how his integrity, because of the presence of God in his life, the strength that he had to be the kind of man that it was obvious to everyone that God was in his life, that at the moment when there was a question about his character, his master didn't have him killed. His master put him in prison. To save his own honor, his master had to do something. We may not understand that in our society, but his master had to do something. He couldn't just come out and call his wife a liar, but there's the hint that he didn't quite believe her story. Because if the penalty for the crime he's accused of is death, why didn't he kill him? There's something about the presence of God and the life of Joseph that protects him even in wrongful accusation. When it seems as if he's going to be killed, undeservedly, the presence of God protects him. I find that to be pretty amazing. I believe Joseph knew that he's, he's being slandered not for something he did wrong, but because of the presence of God in his life. I believe that he also knew that somehow his suffering and, and his wrongful imprisonment would serve to build his character because he trusted in the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. In our lives today, if in the midst of times like that we remain faithful to Jesus Christ, it's then that he is clearly seen. When you leave this church service today 
and you wake up tomorrow and you may go to work or school or wherever it is you may go, and you face difficult and trying times, that's, that's when it's more important than even in church to maintain your faith in Jesus Christ because that's when it's obvious to everybody. It's really easy to do that here. But that's when God comes through for you in the midst of wrongful accusation, in the midst of difficult times. The presence of God was enough for him. And he's able to endure it, even though it was unfair. God's presence was enough for him. It's also enough for him when he's in prison. The cycle repeats itself. I love it. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, <laughs> even in prison. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And he put all the prisoners who were, under, who were in the prison under Joseph's authority and he was responsible for everything that was done there. Just like Potiphar, the warden did not burden, bother himself with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything that he did successful. It's a story of God's quiet control. It's a story of the man of God's faithfulness and his quiet victory. God uses this particular story, if you trace it, to get Joseph in position to be next to Pharaoh. You realize that God had a plan way ahead of time? And he wanted Joseph to be next to the Pharaoh to preserve the nation of Israel so that through the nation of Israel he could bring the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in order for that to happen, Joseph had to be sold into slavery, rise to prominence in the, in the, the master's house, have something happen that would get him next to, as we'll see next week, the servants of the Pharaoh, what was that? They were in prison. Where did Joseph have to go? He had to go to prison. And eventually, through all of that, several years later, he's going to rise to prominence. God was up to something different, but his presence never left Joseph. Throughout his entire life, the presence of God was enough for Joseph. No matter how many crutches are removed, no matter how many hits he takes, the presence of God was always enough. So what do you do? I want you to remember that no matter how many crutches are removed, even if they're all gone, that the presence of God is enough. For some, you just need to let that sink in and repeat it this week. What do you do when all your crutches are removed and you realize the presence of God is enough? The first thing I tell you is trust it. Trust the presence of God. The relationship that Joseph had with God, let me tell you, is not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just that God was close to him back then. What a nice story. What a wonderful example of how God might get close to somebody from time to time. Paul wrote about it in Galatians chapter 2. He wrote about the life of Christ that was in him. And he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but what? Christ lives in me. I don't have the presence of God just on the outside. He says, I've got it in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2, 19 and 20. You realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, we now have the full expression of God's love and presence inside of us. Not on the outside, not just like Joseph experienced, but inside of us. And if you've given your life to Jesus and received His salvation, His forgiveness, the Bible says that the Spirit of Jesus now lives inside of you. 
So you can trust as a believer in Jesus Christ that yes, the presence of God is with you and in fact is inside of you and will always be enough. Just like it was for Joseph in Egypt. So when you are in an ungodly environment, and I know that some, you look at me and you say, you work at the church. You're just around Christians all the time. Man, I'd love to work at the church. I know many of you go every day to ungodly environments. God, it seems, is nowhere to be found. But even there, because of the presence of God in you, the presence of God is enough. When you're far from what you've been able to lean on, young people, you're away from home, and it may get lonely. You may get frustrated. It may be awful from time to time. It may be discouraging and depressing. But if you know Jesus, you have the presence of God, not just with you in a warm, fuzzy feeling, but in you. Christ lives in me. Even when you're alone, even when you seem to be abandoned by everyone, even when you're forced into a situation you'd rather avoid, even when you feel discouraged and depressed at your lowest moments, even when you have, it seems, no hope for a better tomorrow than it was today, even when all you get are bad reports, one after another, even when, as we saw last week, you're rejected, that's when you and I need to remember that the presence of God is in us. And it is enough. We need to remember and trust in the presence of God. He's promised to never leave those who believe in Him. So trust it. Also remain in it. Paul said, the life I now live, I live by faith. I keep going, but I, I have a different life. Just like Joseph, we've got to always live in awareness of the presence of God. Let it affect everything that we do. Joseph was a slave, but he remained in the presence of God. And he worked like crazy to make his master successful. You realize Joseph, in his flesh, I'm sure, didn't care anything about Potiphar. I mean, how could he? Here's a guy who owns him, literally owns him. And yet, because he remained in the presence of God, he was able to rise above all of that. I wonder if the same can be said about, about us, about you and me. Is the presence of Jesus in our lives evident to those that you work with? Or does that water cooler crowd sort of draw you in? <laughs> and all the negativity, do you just sort of perpetuate it? Boy, it's hard. What about those that you go to school with? Is the presence of God in your life evident to them, or you just get sucked in? Do people take notice when you work hard despite really awful working conditions? Do they take notice? Do your friends notice that your effort in school doesn't slip just because of an awful professor or a teacher you don't like? Do you remain in the presence of God in all situations, wherever you go? Or is it, is it just a Sunday thing? And by Wednesday, you've forgotten all about the presence of God. I wonder. Sunday as important as it is, is not enough. We've got to remain in the presence of God all week. And finally, I, I want to challenge you to honor the presence of God. Honor it. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are to honor, always honor, the presence of God in our lives, just as Joseph did. When he faced temptation, 
What was the deterrent? The presence of God. He knew God was there, that God was watching, that He was accountable to him. When we're faced with a choice, are we going to choose pleasing God or pleasing people? Choose career or character? Which one will it be? Joseph chose to honor the presence of God. Each of us have a a choice to make this morning about the way that we will live after seeing this story of Joseph and seeing the presence of God active in his life. I want you to know that no matter where you are this morning, who you are, what you've come with, that Jesus invites you into his presence this morning. I heard it said this week, and I loved it. This isn't about us inviting Jesus into our lives. (laughs) This is about Jesus inviting us into his lives. And we die to it all. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ has taken over. He lives in me. Only by dying to yourself and having Jesus live in you can you truly and successfully navigate all that life throws at you. That's it. That's all. That's your only hope. Only He can build and mold you into the person that He wants you to be. And it's His presence that will be enough for you no matter what you face in life. Even when all your crutches are removed, and some of you right now are limping, because your crutches have been taken away, what will be enough for you? The presence of God is enough. Are you leaning on anything this morning but Jesus Christ? If you're leaning on anything but Him, guess what? One day, it'll be gone. What will you be left with when all your crutches are removed. I challenge you this morning to throw all those crutches away. Cast them all aside. Toss them as far as you can and lean on Jesus. Come to Him through faith and repentance this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You know our situations. You know where we are. You know the folks who seem to be in slavery this morning. You know those who are facing temptation. You know those who have been wrongfully accused and faced unfair circumstances. You know those this morning that are paying for a crime that they didn't commit. You know those who are depressed, discouraged with no hope, those who are angry and bitter. You know those of us, Lord, that walk around on crutches all the time, leaning on everything but you. So God, this morning I pray that that you would remind us and drive deep into our hearts that your presence is enough. That even if all of our crutches are gone, just like Joseph, that you're enough. So God, as we leave a Sunday, may that be true in our lives on Monday and Tuesday and all the rest of this week. For wherever we go and whatever we face. Lord, we thank you for the promise that those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are believers in him, we have the presence of God in us. So God, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to lean only on you. We pray in Jesus' name.